Turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And let me pray again for us as we jump in. Father, we do thank you for the gift of marriage. We do thank you for the gift of our wives or respective husbands. We thank you for the glory of Christ and the church displayed through this gift. We thank you for your word that reveals to us your intention and aim in this gift. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to comprehend and behold what you are doing through all that you have made and created. And so we pray now that you would raise our thoughts and our sights and to see what you see and to glory in what you glory in and to delight in what delights you so that we would be freed to love more, joy more, have more peace in what you've given And then in everything we think and feel and do that we would do all things for the glory of the one who has redeemed us. And so we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our husband. Amen. Well, the mission of marriage, that's kind of the the overall idea that we're going to think about together in these 24 hours. And specifically tonight, what's, what's our aim for marriage? Tomorrow, what's our place in it? Thirdly, what's our work? And then finally tomorrow, what's, what's our hope? Where what this retreat won't be about is 19 techniques for great communication. That won't be what this is for. And one reason is because I've never actually met a married couple that had a communication problem. Not in 20 years of marriage counseling. I've ever met a couple... It actually has a communication problem. If you speak only German and your spouse speaks only French, that's a communication problem. But that's not usually what we do. Because if you really think back on when you're colliding with each other and fumbling over each other and not making sense of what's going on and angry and resentful, and what you'll probably find is you're both speaking good English. Right? You're, you're comprehending you're, you're the nouns you're using, the verbs you're using, the sentence structures you're choosing. Your communication is not the problem. Something on the inside is the problem that makes helpful, constructive, edifying communication impossible. Which is why what we're going to do is focus on the heart. Focus on what is God actually after and what is he wanting to change in us and grow in us and develop in us so that we're different in marriage. So that then when you add communication skills to it, it actually works in an edifying direction. And you're not just arming seven-year-old children to go to war with better weaponry. Which is what we do when we just get better at communicating, yet no less proud. (laughs) more skilled at using words, yet no more loving. And so we'll talk about what what God's actually going to be after in all of us is, is the heart. That we would really see what he's trying to do with marriage, what he's trying to do through us, and come to appreciate it 
and delight in it and love it, what marriage really means, what the point really is. So I don't know about you, if you've ever woken up in the morning and really asked, you know, what are we doing? (laughs) What is the point? What are we trying to do? What is the target? Where are we going? And praise God in his word, he just answers those questions so clearly. But we have to get over some humps because the answers he gives aren't always the answers we want to hear first. I was even reflecting that just a couple weeks ago reading in the book of Hosea, where God's going to say to Hosea in Hosea 1, Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. You can tell, here's his prophet, Hosea, he's going to say, go marry this prostitute, and then she's going to be unfaithful to you and have children out of other relationships that are going to be children of unfaithfulness. You know, okay, why? Well, because that's what Israel is like with me, their husband. Then, praise God, it doesn't end there. Chapter 3, and the Lord said again to Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. In other words, go redeem her. Go restore her. Go reconcile to her. Well, why? He says, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So Isaiah, you go love Gomer this way. You redeem her, restore her, reconcile with her, because that's how I am with my people. And even though God has not called us, praise God, to each marry an unfaithful spouse, nor is that the goal is to be unfaithful in marriage, what I think we're meant to see in passages like that is how God-centeredly God thinks about his creation and how much he thinks it's actually about him. That he would say, Hosea, here's what I want you to go do. Here's the marriage you're going to have. And all of it to show the world what I'm like as a redeeming Savior and what you're like as someone in need of redemption. Because how many of us, if you were to really ask yourself, or if I was to come to your church and say, okay, Hosea, here's Hosea and Gomer. Here's their story. Um, how about them becoming members? And then how many of you think they have a good marriage? How many of you would say, yes, now that's a good marriage? Most of us wouldn't. But what if you were to ask God the same question? God, do they have a good marriage? I think he'd say, yes, to which we'd say, well, why? He says, well, it fulfills the purpose for which I sent it. It communicates exactly what I want it to. And I say that so that even as you think of, begin to think about marriage this weekend, you begin to go, okay, this is going to take God's help to see it the way he sees it, to appreciate it the way he appreciates it. That what God isn't saying is he values unfaithfulness or he thinks that's right or good. What he's saying is there's a level at which he's operating on in our marriages that we in our flesh cannot comprehend. (laughs) And we need his help to comprehend. That if we think his goal in marriage is to deliver to us our personal preferences and appetites to make our life work better, then we are setting ourselves up for a life in marriage of constant confusion and disappointment. 
if we think his point in it is to deliver something just merely to me. And that what makes a marriage good is the happiness of the people who are in it and getting what they want, which is how we usually measure good, right? Is your marriage good? Oh, yeah, why? Well, we're both okay with it. But is God okay with it? Well, we don't think about that part. <laughs> is it accomplishing what he would like to see accomplished? And so as we turn our attention to this idea of our aim, we're wanting to go and see, okay, God, what's your aim? <laughs> Let's go back to the beginning of Genesis 2, when you made this thing and gave this thing and see what did you have in mind? What's your mission for it? What's your aim for it? Genesis 2, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone, and I'll make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whenever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to all the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. The Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So the first thing I want us to see from this passage is that marriage is God's idea, not our idea. It's not Adam's idea. That nothing good about marriage arose from the thoughts and intentions and wisdom of human beings. Everything wonderful about it, good about it, glorious about it, the reality of it arose from the mind of God. And it is wonderful. Like every created thing that he made and that he gives, he, he decided upon it from his own free will, from his own sovereign grace, and then he's going to give it as a gift. And he's going to see it and create it because of an observation. Verse 18, it is not good for man to be alone. I think that's a really important statement. And what God isn't talking about is some oversight in his work. God isn't getting to the end of creation. He's done it all. Here's Adam. He's like, oh, I forgot something. I missed it. That's actually not what he's doing. This isn't for him. This is for us. What God's showing is that he's going to leave something or rather someone out of the creation order for the time being, in order to show something to Adam and something to all of us. I think he wants to make clear that Adam in his alone state is not what God thinks he ought to be. Or just as importantly, that if he leaves Adam in his alone state, he will certainly become something that he doesn't want Adam to be. What he isn't seeing is loneliness. If you were to ask Adam, hey, are you lonely? He wouldn't have a clue what you're talking about. He doesn't even have a category for that. God's not seeing loneliness. He's not seeing boredom in Adam. He's not seeing sexual frustration in Adam. 
He's not seeing the laundry pile up, right? There's no laundry at this point. He's not watching Adam eat too much fried food. There's no fried food. In other words, he's not seeing some sort of need in Adam that he needs somebody to come fill. Some missing thing about Adam that, okay, I've got to get somebody that can help fill that void in him. Those would be man-centered explanations of the problem. So what does he mean by it's not good for man to be alone? Well, I think if we think about the context, about why God resolved to make man in the first place, we can find the answer. If you look over at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. So a key to our answer to that question is in that phrase, make man in our image. In other words, make man to display myself in the world and serve as my representation and representatives in the world. Which then brings us to another question, well, who is God? That he would make man in his image to display him in the world, to represent him over his creation. And then he looks at something about him and says, okay, that's not good. What is it about God that Adam is not able to display, not able to image in his alone state? Now, I'll consider it a few ways. I think, firstly, God is personal. That's the first thing. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has been eternally. They're equal substance, yet distinct. Secondly, God is eternally other-oriented. God is eternally looking outward from himself at other. The Father looking at the Son. The Son at the Father. The Son at the Spirit, the Spirit exalting the Son. Then thirdly, he is perfectly self-giving and perfectly self-sacrificing. In other words, God offers himself for the good of others. Offers himself in serving others, for the welfare of others. This is John 17 where Jesus is saying, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you've given me is from you. And we know that Christ would be glorified and the Father with him by his joyful, obedient sacrifice upon the cross for the redemption of his bride. We know that's what Jesus is talking about. Now, Father, glorify yourself and glorify me now on the eve of the crucifixion as I'm about to go and do this. Joyful, obedient sacrifice for the redemption of his bride. And he would be glorified in his resurrection. So again, we see the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit being glorified in giving of themselves to others, loving others, pouring out for others. And this is the God that Adam is created to image. This is the God, God that Adam's created to represent over the creation, who is given to, to display and to showcase who God is. So now when you think about that, about who God is, and about his resolve to create man in his image, now when God says it's not good that he's alone, 
Now think about what he's talking about, what he's getting after. God saw his aloneness and declared, that isn't good. That isn't like me. That doesn't show the universe what I want them to see. Adam will be too preoccupied with himself. Adam has no one of his nature, no one of his substance to orient himself toward, to love, to pour himself out for. And so he needs a helper, one suitable for him, of his substance, like him but distinct, someone who can help him subdue the earth, someone who can help him reflect who God is. That's a very different reason to think about why marriage is here. And sadly, I would say 95% of the Christian books on marriage don't begin with God as the reason for marriage. They begin with human need is the reason. They, we take the word alone and translate it lonely, which isn't at all what God's saying. We take the word alone and think, oh, okay, he has no one to take care of stuff for him. No one to give him these things and do this. And again, that's not what God's seeing. Because God sees himself as the ultimate point and the display of his glory as the reason for everything. And just consider how much disappointment you've experienced in your own marriage because you thought it was about you. Right? Right? How much disappointment in your marriage is because you were convinced God gave you this person to give you respect. God gave you this person to give you approval. God gave you this person to serve this desire and this desire and this desire and this desire. And that doesn't at all mean there aren't ways to be served and there aren't blessings and all that. But when we take the gifts and the blessings and make them the point... Well, now what do we do when our spouse acts like a human, like a sinner, like someone whose world doesn't revolve around ours? Like how many of us silently didn't know it at the altar? We're standing there going, okay, finally, someone who will love me the way I need to be loved, right? That's why we're smiling up there. Finally, someone who is just going to take care of me and love me this way and do this and this. And, and we think that we have this exalted view. And, and that's why we really can't think of marriage too highly. And by that I mean wrongly. See it as God's giving you a vehicle to deliver these cravings. Which always leads to us to think of marriage too lowly in the end when it fails to deliver and that's when we begin to go, yeah, our marriage isn't good. Our marriage isn't healthy. Our marriage isn't. And that takes us back to, well, it depends on who we're asking and what our aim is. What do we think our marriage is really for? And even looking back at Genesis 2 through passages like Ephesians 5, where Paul's going to talk about husbands loving your wives and wives submitting to your husbands, because this is a picture of Christ and the church. And he's going to talk about how this was a mystery 
meaning this was something that has always existed in marriage. So now even looking back at Genesis 2 through Ephesians 5, we realize that, okay, even in Adam and Eve, in ways they wouldn't even have comprehended, God hid the picture of Christ in the church, even then. That's why Paul calls it a mystery. Nobody realized for all these centuries of marriage that what it was really telling the story of is Christ in the church, of God's redeeming love and through his son, reconciling his people to himself. As far as Adam was concerned, before Eve, nothing was missing. Again, if we'd asked him whether or not he was lonely, he wouldn't have had a clue what we were talking about. If he was dissatisfied, he wouldn't have known what to say. He was content. He was satisfied. He had God walking with him every day in the garden. Everything was wonderful. And so God was not responding to man-centered need and desire, but to God-centered will and purpose. That's why God's creating marriage. Not because he sees a man-centered need and desire, but because he's moving with God-centered will and purpose. And the benefits for us are enormous. What I don't want you to hear is that there aren't benefits in it for us. The benefits are enormous. The gifts of God are constant. But we will only enjoy them to the proportion to which we see God's point. (laughs) So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, brought them to the man. So he's going to use the soil to create all these animals. He's going to march them in front of the man. He's going to name them. But then he says, but... For Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. That's remarkable. Because it it may seem like what God's doing is, okay, let's try a giraffe. How about that? Okay, that didn't work. Okay, how about a cow? Nope, that didn't work. Okay, a dog. Surely this will do it. Nope. And so is this God experimenting, trying to figure it out? Or is that for Adam? Is that for us to see? None of this will do. This animal, this animal, this part of creation, no, I'm going to have to create a whole new thing, except not from ground, from you. I'm going to put you to sleep, and from your rib, form someone of your substance, someone who's begotten of you, but I'm going to form of you. So God will bring about a woman from the substance of Adam, and he will bring about marriage by his own work, his gracious, awesome work, which brings us to second point. Marriage is God's work. Just like the rest of creation, after conceiving it in his mind, God put Adam to sleep, took one of his ribs, formed the woman, then brought her to him. And so at no point can Adam take credit for this, right? Where was he when God was doing all this? Unconscious. He's asleep. God made them. God introduced them. And then, to use Jesus' words in Matthew 19, 6, and then God joined them together. Matthew 19, 6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That's an amazing statement. That when an ordinary man, an ordinary woman, stand before God and the church, and exchange vows in marriage, and then go and consummate that marriage, that God actually does something that is invisible yet completely real. 
he joins us together. And there's something about that idea that should strengthen us in marriage. What it means is as Christians, to really destroy your marriage and to, and to just lead to divorce, you're going to have to work at it. I do not subscribe to the position that it's easy for Christians to divorce. You have to work against God to do it. And so we should never think for a minute that remaining faithful in marriage with the help of God is somehow harder than remaining faithless and abandoning our spouse. Because everything about this says, no, God joined you together. God's with you and for you. So if you're going to break it up, you're going to have to work at it. You're going to have to really harden your heart. You're going to have to really persist in opposing God every day. Because he's pushing you this direction. He's with you and for you in it. He's going to strengthen you in it. He's joined you together. He's committed to this. And so there's something about that truth that God joins us together that should really strengthen us every day. Where you know he's with you. He's for you. The things that are against you is the world and the flesh and the devil. Those are the forces that you feel in opposition. I think also that truth should satisfy us, strengthen us. It should satisfy us that we know the person to whom we're married is the person to whom we should be married. Guys ask me all the time, how do you know if she's the one? And I say, well, as soon as you marry her, she is. That's how you know. And then that should satisfy you. Because you know God's joined you together. And so there's going to be days where you have to fight for satisfaction in God in marriage. But what I find, you have to fight for satisfaction in Christ. And he's perfect. He's never done you any wrong. But just that truth, okay, God's joined us together. This spouse you're given from God, joined together, is the spouse you're meant to have. And that should satisfy us. We should not look elsewhere. There's no reason to wonder whether or not we made a mistake. God has joined us together. So our decision to marry isn't the only reason we're married, and it's certainly not the decisive reason. That's important. You really think you're the decisive reason in marrying your spouse? Or is there a God who is that sovereign over everything? Or there's a God who actually joined you together, your mate, where he thinks he's the decisive reason? You are where you are. There's something about that, I think, that can just be very satisfying. Marriage may be hard, but it's good. So if someone were to ask you, is marriage painful? I think you can say, sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes. Is the Christian life painful? Sometimes. Not all the time, but it's good. It's worthwhile. What else do we want to do with ourselves? We're meant to accept it, enjoy it, be satisfied in the wife of your youth. Proverbs 5, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. I use that often as an argument with my wife. Be exhilarated always with her love. That you hear that kind of language, you go, yeah, we're meant to enjoy it. We're meant to be satisfied with our wives. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. 
In other words, don't look around. There's no one else God's given to satisfy you in that way. And so don't even question. And also this truth of God joining us together should sober us. In marriage, we've not been given a worthless sort of plaything, but something precious, something valuable to God, God's work. Like if Picasso shows up at your house and he did this painting just for you and hands it to you, this is a gift, and then you sort of just take it into the wall and, or put it up on the wall and then get out just a red tub of paint and draw circles on it and then go get your darts and just start playing darts. Is that just a statement about what you think about the painting? Or is that a statement about what you think about the painter? <laughs> and so it's, that should sober us, the idea that, that God's joined us together and gives this to us as a gift in marriage. Now, does that sober us? That this is precious to God, God's work, God's name, God's glory. It's no small matter. God made it. And in committing ourselves to marriage, we, we committed to accepting the gift and therefore taking care of the gift. So God has joined us together. It's his work. Let that strengthen us. Let it satisfy us. And let it sober us. But then thirdly, marriage is God's gift. Adam had done nothing to earn marriage. All he had to do is receive it. It's grace. Proverbs 18.22, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. I don't think it just means that you, you find a wife and then God's going to give you favor. No, the wife is the favor. The husband is the favor, is the gift from God. And so the spouse we've been given is a good and blessed gift, which is one way we're meant to interpret when it is hard. That's part of the gift. When your spouse says something rude and unkind, when they're disrespectful, when they don't do what you want, that's part of the gift. Because could we all use a little bit more of not getting our way? Could we all use a little more bring it down to earth and sort of put me in my place? It doesn't make sin not sinful. It just means that no matter what circumstance we're facing in marriage, I can always go, this is good for me. This is good for me. How do I know? Because it's happening. And God uses all things for the good of those who love him. He gives us those kinds of statements in the word of God to help us interpret life. To help us interpret what goes on in our marriages. So that when even hard things are happening, we can interpret it. Okay, God thinks I need this. And what does it mean to trust him in that? Is it humbling me? Is it causing me to cry out in prayer? Is it bringing me to my knees in dependence on God because I don't know what to do with what's going on? Is it forcing me to learn how to love when, and how to bless when cursed? How to serve when not served? 
or how to be thankful when I am served, how to be humble in asking for help from my spouse, how to be humbled in confessing sin to my spouse, how to be humbled in helping them understand the gospel when they're struggling with guilt or shame. In every situation, we can interpret, okay, this is God's good for me. And the reason we know is because it's happening. <laughs> and he uses all things for the good. of The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. He always gives what's good. <clears throat> and Adam seemed to recognize this. After receiving Eve from the Lord in verse 23, chapter 2, he's going to declare, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I think there's a sense of awe in his words, a sense of appreciation, a, think, a sense of, wow, I didn't even know this could happen. I didn't even see this could be possible. Again, there's nothing, no need in him. It's all bonus. This is all just extra. This is way outside what he thought could even be given. God's giving abundantly beyond what he ever could think or ask. And he's going to praise God for it. He's going to be thankful for it. You don't get this sense of, well, about time. Right? He's not entitled. You know, Lord, yeah, about time you started giving some stuff. Finally, I get, I get the, the, the gal I deserve. No, it's just all gratitude. He sees the grace in it. But then finally, marriage serves God's aim. There are little blessings and particular graces and even big encouragements for earthly life that come to each of us through marriage. We should praise God for it. We just have to realize this isn't the ultimate reason for it. Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 32. We'll close here. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's important. So he's not saying, husbands, love your wives because she really needs it. No, what does it say? Husbands, love your wives. Why? Because that's how Christ is. I tell husbands all the time, actually, your wife will be fine without you. God's grace is sufficient. He is mighty. He's the one she really needs. And so you're not called to love her because she just can't survive without that. You're called to love her because that's what shows the world who Jesus is. That's what shows your wife who Jesus is. That's what reflects the glory of Christ and the church. And I think it's also very freeing for you as a wife that you can actually realize, oh, wait, so I don't need it. That... God's grace is sufficient. It's a blessing. It's good. My husband's love is wonderful. And, and when he's unloving, I'm allowed to talk about it and bring it up to him and confront him in love. But what it doesn't mean is, is that somehow you have to go through life miserable. And same for wives with their husbands. I'll keep reading. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to her the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. He's going to go on before that, even introducing wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Again, wives, honor your husbands as if he were Christ. Because this shows the proper adornment of the church's attitude for Christ. What he isn't saying is, okay, wives, submit to your husbands, respect them, because they really need it. They're not going to be able to make it without it. That's not what he's saying. And husbands, there's something there that's meant to be freeing for us. If your wife is disrespectful, you're okay. You don't have to get bent out of shape. She's not stealing from you. God doesn't give you a wife to help you be glorified, but rather that together y'all would help to project Christ in the church. So even here we're meant to see, okay, marriage serves God's aim, and that is to display his glory. And there's great benefit to us, great blessing to us, great encouragement, great gifts for us. But then we will only enjoy those gifts in proportion to which we see God in the middle and his glory as the point. So just a few questions to consider this evening, even as you head back to your rooms with your mates that reflect in the days ahead. Are you learning to see marriage, your marriage, as a tangible, beautiful display of Christ in the church? Are you more and more seeing that? And if so, how is that changing you? Yeah, secondly, in what ways have you been tempted to either worship marriage, to make it an idol, to make it this thing that delivers to you godlike things, or disdain it, or even turn marriage into something more disdainful? And yeah, thirdly, what daily changes in your home might help you and your spouse live more strengthened, more satisfied, more, more sobered in marriage? Let me pray for us. Well, Father, we give you praise as the giver of all good gifts. We thank you for marriage. We are richly blessed. We have obtained favor from your hands. And we proclaim that we who have been given wives have been given good things. Those who have been given husbands have been given good things, and so we rejoice in the gift, but pray that you would protect us from turning the gift into God, but rather would see the gift as a means to worship you as God, to enjoy you as God, to proclaim you as God, to exalt Christ as the Redeemer of our souls. And so help us, we pray, in the most practical ways. In Christ's name, amen.